Welcome to Boundless Pursuit, a weekly podcast providing motivation, entertainment, and education to anglers and outdoorsmen. I hope that the stories you'll find here will encourage you to chase your passion more fervently, to open your mind to new opportunities and perspectives. Your engagement and feedback is critical to the growth of this show, and I would love to hear your suggestions on topics or potential guests. You can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com or at my website, www.boundless-pursuit.com. That's where you'll find all related articles, media, and merchandise. Please remember, the show will gain traction from your support. Be sure to like, comment, and share this podcast to your friends and connections. I'm your host, David Graham. Now let's get on to today's episode. You know, the crazy thing about social media, it's easy to find people who fish. It's easy to find people who catch big fish. It's easy to read a caption or a hashtag, but it is very hard to read or gauge authenticity or character. I love finding anglers that are on the upstart, though. The guys that are not so wrapped up in performance metrics on Instagram, followers, likes, shares, you know, those kinds of things but just authentically sharing what they love. I found today's guest when I stumbled across a video that he had made solo trekking through the Okefenokee Swamp in Georgia, chasing bowfin with a fly rod. It was just him, his fly rod, a GoPro, sight casting for bowfin. But I thought that his delivery was real. The videography was solid, and it was just enough to get me to click on to the next post because I liked what I saw. I felt that it was real, it was authentic, and I could Feel the passion that he had for fishing in his narration and just his clear effort to capture the moment, the angles, and to pay respect to the fish itself. And in looking through his post, I found that this is just a young, authentic guy that loves what he does, chasing the next bite all across this country, from South Georgia to South Florida, out west into the mountains, doing these solo hikes, long distance over the mountains, chasing trout. And he's just out there alone taking photos and videos and just sharing what he likes to do alone. His name is Ellis Wynn, and he runs the Half Moon Fly Fishing YouTube channel, and he's Half Moon Fly Fishing on Instagram. And he's just a solid young dude getting after it and chasing what he loves with enough interest and passion for the purity of the sport to share it in a way that is real. We had a great dynamic conversation about bowfin, trout, shoal bass, tarpon, fishing in the Everglades, fishing out in the mountains, just the whole experience of being a multi-species fly angler from the perspective of a young dude that's fresh out of school, just finding his way. And I found it to be one of the more enjoyable conversations that I've had in quite a while. And I think that you're going to enjoy this one too. All right, you you hear that? Yeah, yeah. All systems go. So, all right, half moon fly fishing. Ellis Wynn, you know, I, I've been following That's you for a little bit, and I only just recently learned your name only because you sent me your email address so that I could invite oh, yeah, you yeah, yeah. <laughs> onto this podcast. Oh, hell, that's his name. You know, I could, I guess I could have just asked, but, uh, well, what's going on, dude? How's it Nothing been? much, man. Yeah, it's been good. Uh, actually got out in the woods this morning and did a little bit of uh, traditional bow hunting. So that was that was nice. I haven't done that in probably four or five years. So uh, All right. Well, this is a fishing him. podcast. We don't talk about that. <laughs> Nah, no, no, you know what? Uh, I'm just kidding. I I want to dive into all that it, it that is uh, involved in your interest in the outdoors, hunting, yeah, fishing, 
anything like that. Photography. I've talked to guys that their whole thing was photography. Art. I've seen you do a little bit of art as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Multi-talented, multifaceted, and, and and engaged in the outdoors in a lot of different realms. But uh, I stumbled across your page. I don't even remember how. I, I, I just noticed. You don't have a giant page, but you do have a good, diverse collection of catches. And as a multi-species guy myself, I always appreciate people who, you know, are are kind of varied in their approach towards fishing, who 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 go after a lot of different things. But it might have been your video, Fly Fishing for Bowfin, that got me. I'm not sure. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah um, just good, wholesome, diverse fly fishing stuff. I've seen you out west. I've seen you up in mountains. I seen you down in lowland swamps, swamps in Georgia. So, like, where is home for you? Because you seem like you kind of been getting around. Yeah, man. So, uh, I, this is going to actually take a little bit of a storytelling. But so, I'm originally from Georgia, uh, born and raised, and uh, I guess the only reason I know about Bowfin and a lot of the swampy areas that I sometimes find myself in fly fishing is because when I was younger, uh, my dad was a game warden. I mean, just preface that. So a lot of guys in the podcast from you all know, oh, shit this guy. <laughs> no, no, you know what? You just really piqued my. I'm a former law enforcement guy myself, and okay, cool. I yes. tried and failed on two occasions to become a game warden when I was sort of transitioning out of that work. It's like I want to get out of the you know the beat cop thing. Um, I want to get off yeah, of yeah, uniform yeah. patrol, but ah, man, if I could blend my passion for fishing with my passion for law enforcement, be great. But I tried and I failed, but anyway. Look, yeah, look at it this way, man. It's like your fly fishing guys. They love to fly fish, but they don't get to when they're guiding people. So that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's what you'd essentially be as a uh, as a game warden. But yeah, so my dad, uh, he's a huge outdoorsman. I, I really owe a lot to him as far as getting me involved in uh, just being outdoors in general, but also hunting and fishing. And uh, we would would literally take little ultralight spinning reels or little zebcos and man we go hit these little creeks and stuff they'd be maybe two feet deep in the summertime and i mean panfish bass uh you'd see the bowfin you know they're really slow moving fish and you just see them just slowly drift by in the water column and uh you know if if, if you wanted to lose a little crankbait or something that cost about five dollars you'd you know, pitched out of there at him and get your line broke in about two <laughs> seconds. But uh yeah, that's how I got kind of started in in uh the swampy areas. And then when I went to college, uh let me back up a little bit. They had actually bought me a fly rod when I was uh about eleven years old. Mm-hmm. It was actually a pretty nice fly rod. I still have it and um I still have the reel for it. It's like my backup reel and started using it. I remember I went to the Flint River one day with it. And I caught probably about a five or six pound uh, shoal bass. And this was about a three, three weight rod. So it was not, it did not have a lot of power in it. Yeah. You know, your, your weights for fly rods, you have anywhere from a one weight up to a 12. So this is very much on the low end. This is like a trout rod. And uh, I got hooked after that, man. I was like, oh, this is, this is really fun. And then as you get more into it, I'm sure everybody's seen a river runs through it, you know, and uh, I saw that and I was like, oh man, that's what fly fishing is about, you know, but I've never caught a trout up until that point. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so I really, I got my roots on bass, really anything in South Georgia that would bite a fly, um, is how I got my start in it. And I have no regrets as far as that goes. Uh, trout is a completely different thing. Uh, warm water species are completely different. Same thing for cold water species. 
Um, but I, I, I would like to say that I guess guys that focus just on trout, you're missing out on so much, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, the potential to, I mean, for example, I'm in Augusta now and I can drive 30 minutes North and uh, go after striped bass or I can fish in the Savannah for smallmouth. We actually have smallmouth in the Savannah in this part of uh, Georgia uh, or I can go catch both in over in South Carolina. I mean, the, the options are really pretty unlimited where I can drive, you know, four hours North and go catch trout, but yeah. 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 I mean, don't limit yourself to the trout. Those is my main takeaway from that. Um, a lot of other things to experience. Yeah. Well, I always like people's like origin stories as anglers, just to kind of get an idea <clears throat> where they started. You know what I mean? And you yeah, mentioned, yeah. you mentioned shoal bass. Now that's one that I've, Got no experience with, never caught. But like people, are like what the hell's it? Show? I mean, a lot of people then they know largemouth bass, <clears throat> they know smallmouth bass, they might know spotted bass, yeah. And then they might throw some extras in there that aren't even bass, like striped bass. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. what is a shoal bass, and where do they live? How do you catch them? Like what? Like describe what is shoal bass? So I'll I'll actually talk about two different species here. I'll talk about a shoal and a spotted bass because those are both my favorite ones. A shoal bass is a native fish to basically southeast Georgia. So it inhabits, uh, let's see, Georgia, Alabama, and a little bit of areas, and also Florida, but mainly their strongholds are in Georgia. So rivers like the Flint, the Oatmuggie, the Chattahoochee, um, those are really the big ones. There's a couple other areas that you can find them in, but those are their, their strongholds. And shoal bass are a subspecies of a largemouth. Mm-hmm. So when you look at them, they resemble more of a smallmouth than they do a largemouth. Um, they're very slender, very narrow-bodied, um, but they have a, it's almost like wide. I can't really describe it. They're taller more than they are wide in that sense. So they have a more aerodynamic shape, I guess, in the water. Um, okay. They are primarily river fish. You know, Georgia, they tagged a few of theirs and they migrate down into the lakes in the wintertime. But for the most part, they stay in the main systems of the river. And uh, they love they love shoals, hence the name shoal bass. Mm-hmm. They like to lay up under those rocks. And when you drag a crankbait or a fly across the top of them, they just come out of nowhere and just smash it, man. Probably uh, the most awesome. aggressive. Yeah, man, they're awesome. Uh, <laughs> most aggressive bass out there, probably, in my opinion. Catch them on topwaters. Sub subwater streamers, you know. I mean, anything you toss at them. My favorite's like a big white uh, game changer. That's a huge fly that's come out recently uh, by a guy named Blaine Chocolate out of Tennessee. Um, but it's basically like a Rapala swimming minnow. If you yeah. look at it, yeah. Blaine's been mentioned a few times on this uh, yeah. on this podcast. I'm familiar with him. I know he's he's been another one of the guys that's uh, you know you, he's got a nice big platform too, and he's used it to promote uh, some of the underappreciated fish. So that's good. It's it's good to have those powerful voices out there and it's, it's equally as good or better to have the the up and coming voices doing the same thing. So I know you, you sort of fit into that category. Um, that's why, you know, I I think if, if I'd have gone to your page and I saw a bunch of trout and bass, I might've been more inclined to keep scrolling. Uh, but then actually, ironically, And I don't want to jump topics too much here. The no, shoal bass, the shoal bass is a really cool one because, you know, it's like a uniquely native fish that I guess as a, as a guy who's native to Georgia, you can take a little more 
pride in. Um, there's a lot of those different geographic, like specific bass species. It's it's a lot of people don't realize just how many of them there are out there. So, um, but that's cool. But I see the photo over your shoulder there of you, like, oh yeah, 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 holding that big gar. Now is that that's a fly caught fish, right? Fly caught fish, baby. Um, it's actually a a nylon rope fly. Uh, okay. It, I, I hate to say it actually caught them with you know a hook and fly, but the purpose of the nylon is it get it get gets wound in the teeth of uh, of the guard. It's it's a pretty common thing. A lot of spin guys do it. Yep, um, I've done that I one. Kind of yeah, and I just kind of alternated it to use for long nose. Um, and so this one I I had caught on the eight weight out of the Flint River. I'm not going to tell you the location of it exactly, but uh, yeah, yeah. the fish couldn't weigh it. So I don't know how big it was. I'm assuming it was at least 15 or 16 pounds, give or take some. Um, but I'll never forget, man, I was I was getting pulled around the river and my rod's just been over my kayak. So my rod just been over like this out of the front <laughs> and uh, getting towed around. And there's about five or six guys on the bank just sitting there watching me like, is he going to land this thing? Or like, what does he have on it? Finally, it comes up to the surface and it tail walks, just tail walks out in front of me like a tarpon and it goes back down. Oh, yeah. And, uh, dude, that was, that was wicked. Like, it was awesome. But my GoPro died like five minutes before I actually hooked into the fish. So, <laughs> couldn't get the you, fight, but it, it was pretty cool, man. Yeah. At this point, anytime I'm fishing using a GoPro, if it runs out of batteries, I'm like higher on alert because I know something crazy is about to go down. It's always all, when the GoPro goes yeah, down. That's like the yeah. precursor to something's about to go down. The GoPro died, and now it's time to be on high alert. You know what? Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I feel like the ropeless, I mean, ropeless, the hookless rope lure. You know, you could almost do a whole entire conversation around that because that is probably one of the most interesting ways yeah. to catch a fish that doesn't get talked about enough. And you talk about something like a long nose gar. That unfortunately yeah. kind of it, it kind of exists in I don't know the shadows of its bigger cousin, but that is a really interesting one to go for, especially on fly, which I've not done. I've caught them obviously on bait and on and on rope lures with spin gear, but fly yeah. fishing for them, I I you know I kind of wonder how often does a freshwater guy have an opportunity to catch a fish over four feet long. Um, in fresh water and doing it point. like yeah. this describe for people. Cause they're like, what are you talking about? You're not using hooks. How are you catching a fish with no hooks? Sure. So uh, I'll, I'll kind of talk about fly fishing with gar for a second. So the thought came to me when I was, I, I mean, I was just at the house. I didn't have anything else to do with summer. We were off uh, out of college for a summer. And I was like, you know what? I want to catch gar on a fly rod. I don't know how to do it though. So of course, the first thing you do is hop on the internet. You start looking up guys who are doing it. And one of them, it was actually, I think it was, uh, God, man, it was some YouTube channel out of like Michigan or somewhere. Mm. And this guy was fishing for, it wasn't in Michigan, but it was up north somewhere. And he was fishing for gar using these flies. And he actually put two hooks in them. So he had a single hook in the front that you typically tie off to. And then he had a trailer hook and both of them were circle hooks. And so I kind of modeled the fly off of that. I just made sure it was a little bit longer. Um, and then fly fishing for gar, nobody does it for one. Like nobody, and I've never seen a single person in South Georgia fly fishing for gar specifically. Um, it's kind of difficult because you have to, it's a very visual thing. 
You're looking for the gar to rise. They rise just like a trout does. They'll come up, they'll go bare. You've probably seen them do it before. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then they go back down. And so you look for the big females to come up. They'll go bare. They go back down. As they're going down, you have to pitch the fly about three to four feet in front of them. It'll sink across their face and you strip. And then uh, when they bite into it, if you can't set the hook, you actually have to pull into them. Right. Because if you set the hook, you'll just pop it out of their mouth. But if you give it a gentle, snug pull, um, it'll just set into their teeth, and then they'll end up wrapping themselves into it. Um, so the it, you could really tie one without using a hook because I mean it's it's not really you know it doesn't do anything. Yeah. Um, but you know the hook kind of helps. If you end up catching a world record, you know it has to have a hook on it. Otherwise, they won't count it. So Actually, didn't, counter, I didn't know that. Yep. Yeah, because I actually had to look at the regulations. Um, I was going to pursue, because I know that there's some 20-plus pound gar in this river that I was fishing, and I was like, I know that I can beat this cash record. Speaking of which, the guy who holds the All-American fly fishing record for the long nose, he has the record for about 30 to 40 other species on a fly rod. <laughs> and I think the only reason he does is because he's a physician out of Florida somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where. But he can afford to take all these wonderful trips. Yeah, yeah. So, but it, yeah, it's, it's, he has the record for like I think the alligator gar, the long nose gar, the Florida gar, like all these gar species, man. And uh, anyway, it's good for him, right? Yeah. Uh, well, look, the record chasers are an interesting uh, category of anglers. Just those yeah. those guys are a different sort of breed that have a different competitive edge than than maybe I have, but. Uh, yeah, the, the the nylon rope lure, I think, is such an interesting thing. I I actually done that years ago. Um, I mean, when I was thirteen, I think I was doing that. So we're talking really 20, 20 years ago. But I don't know why I never tried doing it with a fly rod. But I do remember I did kind of similar because I a lot of times was fishing for long nose gar in the same areas where I would catch bowfin or any other type yeah, of predatory yeah. fish. And it, it would seem like without fail, I'd be throwing these rope lures and working these rope lures, and then something else that I would be just as happy to catch would come up and yeah. smash the rope lure, and of course not get hooked because they don't have the teeth. So I got to a point where I was adding hooks to mine just to help secure bycatch. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. not at all for the gar. I think it's interesting that the guy you're mentioning was using circle hooks on them. I've never found those to be really useful for. Along those guards, just the structure of the yeah. mouth, but um, but yeah, it's crazy. And it, and it seemed like the way that they fight would be a little bit different with the rope lure. It's almost like it was a more of a confused thing until it's, they uh, see you, until they get close to you, and then it's on. The fight's really about the same. I'll say yeah. you would think it would be different, um, but I mean, to to a fish, you know, as soon as it realizes it's not in control, it's yeah. you know everything's off the table at that point. It's going to run. It's going to jump going to try to break you off somehow um so the the rope necessarily doesn't really interfere with the actual fight now when i first started using them i felt almost guilty because i was like i'm not really hooking fish so am i really fishing or am i just snagging the fish mm, so yeah. it's almost like a slight <laughs> ethical dilemma i had but at the same time i'm not using hooks so yeah um 
I, I don't know. I, I still know how I feel about it. I enjoy doing it, but I, I try not to think about it when I'm actually yeah, I, I, fishing for them. I don't think I could relate it too much to, to snagging because it's an intentional predatory response to the lure. Like they're you, you're having to coax them into a bite. So I guess it's a little different than whether they want to bite and whether they don't want to bite. You're pulling yeah, something sure. into the side of them. But, um, you know, the only dilemma I think I have with the with the rope lures has never happened to me, but I always saw the potential. I always had the damnedest time getting that nylon out of their beach, oh, yeah. like it, almost to the point it was so bad. And I think it, I could have just downsized the nylon strands a little bit and you're just too, too long because it becomes such a tangled mess. Sure. That, yeah. That, that getting them out of that was was almost not worth the effort. But I was always worried. What will become of this fish if heaven forbid my line breaks or, you know, somehow they break free and they got this nylon rope around their beak there. I mean, they're, they're done for they're goners. They they'll yeah. never get it out of there, but uh, I guess it's just important that you're tying solid, solid leaders when you're Good using that leaders, stuff. Strong knots. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's make sure you check your leader. Once you get them in, you, yep. know, you can't, Gotta check that leader once they get in, because a lot of times those big gar, especially the big females, man, they will just chew right through. Oh, I mean, yeah, usually yeah. I just use like twenty or thirty pound, but I mean, even that sometimes you really have to pay attention to. Well, I think the thing that people take for granted too with the gar is not just the teeth; it's actually the scales themselves. If they turn broadside and your line wraps around them, the the scales almost some people can't see what I'm doing, but they like they open and close almost like teeth when yeah. they turn. The scales flex open as they're making that turn. And if your line gets between the scales and it closes back, the scales are actually really sharp. And I don't know if you've had the same experience, oh, yeah. but I've always had a hard time, especially with like real big ones, handling them like flesh to scales. It seems like you can't hold them without letting them go and having a few little cuts and scrapes Nicks. and scratches. And They have the most sandpapery skin yeah. of anything that I've ever caught. I mean, it's, it's not like... Uh, it's almost feels like an alligator skin. Like it's that rough, mm -hmm. but it's just sharper. Like everything that you touch on them is abrasive. Their jaw, uh, their scales, hell, even their fins are a little, a little tough. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're just hardcore fish, man. I mean, how long they've been around like a hundred million years or something. Yeah. Now that is, um, I don't know. I've always, and I, you know, that's one of those things that when you talk to, people about guard like it's like the obligatory fact that you have to like rattle off they're prehistoric yeah. they're air yeah, breathers yeah, they sure. can get really big and i feel like you can't like let that side of it get by without appreciating a little bit deeper because when i try to tell people about why guard the thing is and a big motivation behind me wanting to talk to you is it seems like the culture in the north is a little bit more quick to accept I don't know, gar fishing. Whereas down here in the South, like, like you, I was born in South Carolina, been all through yeah, yeah. Georgia, Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma is a little bit more of a, like a reluctance to Trash accept. Fish. Yeah. To yeah. accept different fish. And, um, I don't know. I always try to like, let people know, like, listen, it's, it's a prehistoric fish. Yes. But when you start like really die, like, like, I don't know, focusing on the scope, and the reality yep. of a of a almost impossible number to quantify, like a hundred million years. It's just too hard for our little human being brains to fully like understand the concept of that 
unbelievable period of time. And then I mean, you're like, looking at something that is as old as the dinosaurs. Even yes. that's hard to quantify. But this this is something that is so incredibly tough. It survived extinctions, multiple extinctions of that, I would yeah. say, because we've had several smaller ones since the dinosaurs went out. I mean, you're looking at something that has evolved to the point of perfection and has not changed since then because it hasn't right. had to. Um, I mean, it's the ultimate freshwater fish. And people call them trash fish because the gar, I guess, was really misunderstood. I mean, it's people go down to South America all the time to fish for arapaima, marijuana, mm-hmm. peacock bass. And I'm just like, we have all of the same fish here in the United States. You know, uh, there's. A one down there, I think it's the wolf fish, maybe. Bowfin. Yeah. It's a fish for, um, I mean, we don't have piranhas, of course. We got big ass brim. I don't know if that counts. Um, but I mean, yeah, we got alligator gar. Well, we pike, musky. I mean, yeah. I when mean, you start talking fish. about fish with character or sturgeon, I mean, yeah, we're yeah, sturgeon fit matter. Huge fish. And yep. these guys want to go to South America and they don't even look at gar, they don't even look at bowfin. To them, it's just, you know, it's something that they've accustomed themselves yep. to. And they see it as big, but no one bats an eye about it. And they're some of the strongest fighting fish that are probably out there, I would say. Oh, yeah. Well, it's definitely an interesting thing. It seems almost uniquely, I don't know, it's like a, it's a strangely American thing. This like institutional yeah. reluctance to like deviate from the hard so, line between sport fish and non-game fish it's very weird to me i do think though it seems like that that ideology is slowly it's going away see a lot more guys out there chasing different types of fish but uh you know you talk about the uh the prehistoric thing i have always you know kind of shared this sentiment that you know when i when i canvas i don't know the different array of fish out there to pursue and, you know, you look at their characteristics that they have that you're going to measure yourself against as an angler. I've always had that spot in my heart for the survivors, like yeah. the prehistoric fish that we have, because, you know, when you start thinking, OK, this thing survived the the, the event that ended 70 percent of all life on Earth, plants, yeah. uh, you know, birds, reptiles, whatever was alive, 70 percent of all life gone. And this thing lived. I'm like, okay, so so this thing was contending with monsters that the imagination can, you know, scarcely wrap its mind around during at some point in time. You know, it's a freshwater shark if you want to look at it that way. Different crazy climate changes and and you know, I don't know, the forming of the continents and these fish were there, and to this day they stand essentially unchanged and you've got an opportunity to say okay they survived all of those things with certain characteristics and i have an opportunity to encounter those survival tactics at the end of my line and that's always the way that i've like you know been impacted by fish like agar now when you talk about our um and i always go this route this is always the best segue into like something like a bowfin but when you talk about like our prehistoric fish most people think, okay, well, you, you got white sturgeon, 11 feet long, alligator gar, armor, you know, armor scales, giant teeth, eight feet long, um, paddlefish can be over 100 pounds and got, you know, unique 
physical characteristics and and a lot of our prehistoric fish you can like you can see why they survive they either had like, some size to them to help contend with this or that they had armor they had tools but then you look at something like a bowfin that's been around for just as long and they don't have those things they don't have tremendous size they don't have armored scales it's pure attitude and like will to survive and the fact that you're out there doing it on a fly rod in the deep south i mean just just tell me about that like your first encounter with one sure because we um, gotta go we gotta go down the bowfin rabbit hole dude, here I, bowfin's probably my favorite fish out there <laughs> um I, it'd be a hard place next to a gar as far as southwestern fish go uh second only to a shoal bass but the first time i ever caught a bowfin on a fly it's funny because it was actually on a spinning reel and I put a small brim popper on the end of it. And it was like five pound mono dad, monofilament line. I was with my dad and I was in a little, in a little creek that spring fed. Um, it gets really deep actually. It's I think in the area we were in, it was about 20 to 30 feet deep. So it's, it's incredibly deep in this certain area, but the water's very clear. And I could see this dark shape that was slowly coming up in the water column. And, you know, both in, they don't move fast. They never do. They just look like mm -hmm. small logs just floating through the water, not even swimming. And so I could see this thing. Well, finally it gets to the top about three feet under the surface. And uh, I was like, oh, my God, that's a big bowfin. So I literally, I, it was funny. This is my first encounter with actually fly fishing because I had stripped the line out <laughs> one hand and I had the spinning rod on the other hand. I was actually casting it out as if it was a fly. Um, I, I, yeah, it was crazy. And I put it right in front of the fish. He rose up to it and he sat there for what seemed like an eternity before he actually just, and they do that little small gulp. They don't smash the surface. They just mm -hmm. gulp it in. And he did that. And I set the hook and man, the fight was on. I got a picture of that somewhere around here. And I was like eight years old and I was covered <laughs> in mud. I mean, it was a blast. And, uh, that was my first encounter. And then since then, once I got into fly fishing, I was like, man, that'd be fun to catch one on the fly rod. And so I started doing that and uh, haven't looked back, man. It's been awesome. You know, you can only catch them really when the water's dropped out and low in the summertime yeah. if you're in South Georgia. Now, there's a guy uh, in Michigan. Uh, second time I mis mentioned Michigan. I haven't never fished there, but David uh, Hurley. Yeah, yeah, that's yes, him, man. I, he, he's been on the show already. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I had to cool get him guy. on there. Yeah. Oh man, his fly fishing videos up there uh, on the Great Lakes, the crystal clear water. Incredible, man. Yeah, nuts. I, I, I hit him up, and I was like, dude, if I'm ever up there, like, you got to take me out. We actually have extended family up there, uh, hmm. my girlfriend's family, and uh, I was like, you know, next time we go up there to see family, like, I'm bringing my fly rods, and I'm gonna take you out and we're going to catch some, some both in, in that crystal clear water. Cause it's just beautiful up there. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good uh, dude. I've been, I've been following his stuff for a while. Good, humble guy. Who's yeah. got an incredible fishery and just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I love to see this bowfin culture. It's like once people catch the bug, doesn't matter if you're in Michigan, doesn't matter if you're at the Southern tip of Florida, doesn't matter yeah. where you're at, but I have to like touch on the perception thing because again, deep south you know georgia south carolina i know that you have to at some point come encounter with the detractors 
the people that that tried to 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 explain this isn't the one yeah you don't want nothing to do with them what's the geographic name you deal with i mean what do they call bowfin where you're at is it mud it's got to be mudfish you're in the mudfish zone i think yeah this is mudfish uh i've heard from fly guys who are down here who actually fish for them uh they call them uh swamp trout because yeah, yeah. They, they rise to the surface and they make a little bubble sound uh cypress trout uh, mudfish is really dogfish heard that before Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one's a little further north. Yeah, yeah. And you got um, Chupik and all the Cajun names a little further west. Never heard Chupik before. That's a new one. Yeah, and then um, they call them up in like Canada because they go all the way up to Canada, which is wild. Yeah. They call them. They call them. Uh, uh, I think. It, well, I'm going to butcher the name of it. The French name translates to beaver fish because of the round <laughs> tail. Yeah, because yeah, they, yeah. yeah, they live in all the swamps and the sticks, and they ha- and because they have a round tail, and most fish up there all have a fork tail, so a round yes. tail is interesting. And then where 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 I first encountered them when I was a kid was Arkansas, and everybody called them Grinnell. But there, I mean, I received so much hate for wanting to catch these things. Everybody was telling me how horrible and terrible these things were, and I'm just yep. curious if you encountered similar, and how you combated that. So we have in the fly fishing community, uh, we have guys that are called dry fly purists. It's it's so stupid that we even have this division in fly fishing or fishing in general. But we have these guys called dry fly purists, and they're they're the old breed, right? Like these are the guys who they started fishing on bamboo fly rods with, you know, like the original. Uh, fly reels like the ones that didn't even have drag on them you know uh, and even the ones that didn't start off <laughs> using that stuff they still have the mindset of fly fishing is a trout only sport and mm. it's it's not a sin to do it to other things but it's about the rise it's about the the nature of the trout of knowing your uh etymology of the bugs that they're eating and that's neat. That's wonderful. It's a part of fly fishing, but that's not everything fly fishing. And you only see this with the older generation of guys. Uh, and it was really popularized by, once again, a river runs through. Mm-hmm. Got a lot of people into fly fishing, but it kind of hurt it because it only put the perspective of it's only trout and it's only in Montana. You know, um, the new guys which guys like myself, guys like David, um, guys like Blaine Chocolate. I, we'll talk about him a little bit too, because I, I do have a beef with one of his flies. Uh, <laughs> and who else is there that I'm thinking There's of? Uh, you, you got Drew Price in yeah, Vermont, yeah. and he's been on the scene longer than anybody that I know. I've, I've been running in the Bofin circle since... I don't know, the year 2000. And and Drew's been around the whole time, uh, and he's been doing it on fly for a very long time. But and once is, again, younger guy, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, yo, he'd probably consider himself young. Uh, but um, but he's a seasoned angler, so you say that. And then um, my buddy Grant, there's a guy, Grant Alvis in Virginia. Um, he's doing it a lot. He just, he just did some work with the Fly Fishing Film Tour. Um, oh, did a really? segment on Bofin, which is which that's big. That's good exposure. That's good. Yeah, yeah. That's good stuff. Um, on the fly. So there's a lot of people out there starting to pop up. 
and I consider you one of them because the video I saw that one video you made and it was really it was really cool. Like you you kind of captured the pursuit of the fish really well. And um and I and always, I, I yeah. And, yeah, I, and I know we're we're talking about like how fun it is and how cool it is and how interesting the fish are. But I am all I mean, you know, I'm I'm a bowfin guy and um and we talked about David Hurley. And, you know, I couldn't help but ask him, like, you know, and I'm going to ask you the same thing. Like, he's up there in Michigan. You know, I'm down here in Florida. You're in the middle. You know, Grant's kind of in the in the middle of Virginia. No, everybody's chasing this fish on all these different interesting geographic regions, but I'm always interested in everybody's approach. So let, let's say, like, if I said, all right, Ellis, you're going to gear up to go and pursue Bofin today. What are you looking for? Um, what, what gear are you running? Uh, fly gear. Um, okay. what are you throwing at them? What water features? Like what, what is an ideal day conditions approach tactics for going to catch both in, in our type of water, lowland warm sure, water yeah. swamps. Um, so 100%, this is a visual sport when you're going after both in, especially on a fly rod. You can't, you don't have the luxury of sense. You don't have the luxury of uh, making things vibrate as it moves through the water. Some guys will argue feeling that as far as the vibrations go, but uh, it's purely visual, both for you and for the fish. The uh, bowfin, I don't. This has been my experience, but they don't take top waters very often. If you do t- use a top water fly form, it has to be really small. They don't like the big ones. They don't like frogs. I, I don't really understand why. I would think that they'd be just as aggressive for a frog, but they just aren't. Um, so if I if I was going to go out right now today, anything from a six to an eight weight fly, or I'm sorry, six to eight weight rod, uh, same thing for the reel. The actual video that I did was on a six weight. Uh, it was an Orvis Clearwater that I bought probably a year, two years ago as a uh, streamer rod for trout. And uh, I broke my eight weight the week before that, so that's the only rod I had to use. But more than adequate to handle the bowfin that I was going after that day. They're not huge in that general area. Um, but as far as flies go, uh, oh, you can do sinking line or floating line. It doesn't really matter because you're typically in you know two to three, four, five feet of water at most. Uh, flies, if you're going to be in the Okie at least, um, would be something that's really white, white and shiny and you can even catch a bunch of chain prickle on that if you wanted to. I call it one of my biggest ones actually on a on a fly. It's, a, it's called a deceiver. It's white. The whole thing's white. It's got a, a gold strip going down its back. It's like three or four pieces of uh, gold that just kind of flutter as it goes through the water. Um, if you're going to be in like a little creek or on a lake where the water is really still, calm, not really moving around a lot, jigs like a crawfish type fly is my go-to just because it sinks down really quick a lot of times these bowfin you know they're sitting down the bottom they're waiting for something to come by and if you float by on a kayak or a canoe for that matter you have a very short window to put a fly in front of them get it down fast and to get it across their face yeah because they're not going to want to move a whole lot of distance they're ambush predators so you have to get it down get it fast and then right across their face as a matter of fact, if you look in the video, the first bowfin I caught, I put three casts on them. The first two were way out front, way too far. The fly I was using was probably this big, so it's not huge. The third cast, I came about, I'd say, six to eight inches in front of his snout, and he was just on it, just like that. 
they're also kind of clumsy too, so they'll miss your fly once or twice before they actually get it. Um, but yeah, that's the setup I'd run. So six weight, bite, or darker colored flies if you're in mm -hmm. water. Once again, you want it to be visual and wait for the water to get really low. That's the best time to go, best time to get after them because the water will be clear. And uh, bluebird day, honestly, best day to go right there. Yep. Now, it's, it's interesting to see like the different observations people have in different, I don't know, setups and, and environments, but <clears throat> yours is a lot more similar. And you mentioned fishing in South Carolina too. So I have probably fished for that fish most extensively in South Carolina, but fished in Southwest Arkansas, Oklahoma, yeah. Texas, here in Florida, there's a lot of different environments. I envy the kind of water, like from your video and especially what, what David's dealing with, where it's so visual. I feel like down where I'm at, there's so much black water, which is yeah. clear. Black water is clear, but our both in down here in the black water, especially their, their color is so dark. Like they match the tannins of the water. It's really hard to find them down here where you can see them. So I always envy like seeing y'all's videos and seeing stuff like that, because most of my game with those fish at this point is just sit and wait, chunking with baits. Yeah, but, yeah. um, yeah, the frog thing is interesting too because I, like I said, I fish for them in a lot of different states. But in Virginia, where Grant and my buddy Josh Dolan fish, I went up there to fish for snakeheads. Yeah, uh, the, they're they're northern snakeheads. We've got the bullseyes where I'm at in, in Florida, uh, but they're northern snakeheads, and it's very much like a fast-paced style of fishing. A lot of casts, covering a lot of ground. You're like you're really moving and working for the bite. But yeah, on yeah. the occasion, we would encounter bowfin on frogs. And that is the only place I've ever seen a bowfin, like, I mean, cover ground to get to the frog. I've never really? known them. I've never known them to go out of their way and and come after lure the way that I have observed them doing there, which is wild. Um, it does seem like as far as like frogs go, you're right. Like the, like the kind of frog that has to be continuously brought in. You know what I mean? Like the ones that just, you know, you don't it pause. Is, yeah. It they just, don't like it. It's yeah, too they, much. It's I don't too think much action for them. Yeah. I, I feel like they just don't notice it in time either. Like to your point, they're kind of like, I don't know, slow or lazy, but they're very curious fish that if yeah. there is a noise or a disruption or a vibration, they, they're, they want to come find it. So I, like when I do use the top water, it's got to be very specific conditions. If I'm even to try it, if it's more than four feet deep, not a chance. I won't even, won't even consider it because they don't seem like they want to travel that far up vertically to go after something, not like a bass at all, but in like a foot of water where, you yeah. know, their, their strike radius seems so small. Like they don't seem like they want to move more than half a body length uh, in any one direction to go after something. But in like a foot of water, I'll do it. But only if it's like a popping frog where it's True, very yeah. much stop, start, stop, start. Because what I've noticed, and I don't know if you have had similar encounters, it seems like every time I go bait fishing and I'm sitting, I usually pull, I'm always in, usually in a canoe, yeah, uh, an aluminum canoe at that. It's, it can be noisy, but I'll be sitting along the bank, twiddling my thumbs, playing around, got lines out. And almost every time I'll have, especially in some of my, my solid hot spots, I'll always have at least one visitor. And these bowfin will come up and just like 
they pull up, they'll pull up right up on the canoe if I'm not moving it too much. And they just want to know what is this thing? What's going on? I sense movement. I mean, I've had them put their nose on the edge of the canoe and I'm literally looking over the, like the side of the gunnels of the canoe down at this thing's dorsal undulating. It's funny you say that, man, because especially during the mating season for them, they're starting to go through that whole reproductive cycle. The males, you know, they get super aggressive. They get Mm -hmm. the really bright fire spots in their tail. And I have been on this particular Creek floating down it. And I remember in this one spot, it basically, the water comes into a bend and it hooks. And when it hooks, it digs the entire bank out. So you get a really deep spot in the Creek there, but very clear. And I'll remember I was drifting over it in my kayak, the one that I fish out of now, and I'd hit the side of it with my paddle on accident. And I looked down because I was like, damn, I just hit, hit the kayak, probably just spooked everything in here. And probably one of the biggest bowfin that I've ever seen in my entire life comes up off the bottom and he gets right up under the kayak. And I watched this fish just, I mean, out of nowhere, just right to the bottom of the kayak, just like you're talking about. And he sat there for probably 20 or 30 seconds and just looked, just yeah. looked at the kayak, went up and down it. And then when he took off, I could actually feel how strong of a thump he had as he took off. That's how strong they are in this, yeah. in this water. Now, that's and, funny you mentioned it. That's one thing I've noticed, too, that if you were and there's there's been times where I'm kind of just glossing over like a, a muddy flat or a grassy flat. And you just hear these thuds under the water. Yeah, like, like something under the water is moving so fast. It's creating like a booming noise. And I've watched them to do it. Like we talk about them being a slow fish. I don't know any species that has the short range burst. Now, like they don't travel long distance fast, but the zero to a hundred that they can do is incredible. You like that short find, range burst is bam. Yeah. You will never find a bass, a trout, anything that has the power that a bowfin does. It's it's incredible, just like you're talking about, but you hear it. It's an auditory sound. You hear the the thump of that tail just whipping back and forth in the water. And they only do it once and then they're gone, just mm-hmm. like a bullet. Um, and yeah, man, you'll feel it in the boat. Like you will pass over a flat just like you're talking about, and you'll feel a thump or something under it. You'll think it's an alligator hitting the bottom of your kite, but no, it's just a foot-long bowfin taking off going in the opposite direction of you. Yeah. Well, that's, it's, it's such an interesting fish and I could get hemmed up here talking about them too long. I want to, I want to cover other things, but you know, it is funny just talking about fighting against the perception of the fish, which I I feel like is going away. I, I mean, I think even in all categories of fishing, there's like an older guard that's slowly, you know, going away and you know, we can probably think there's not much we can think social media for. There's a lot we can say it's bad for, but it, it has uncovered these groups of like-minded yeah. anglers that are interested in these fish. There's a lot of, I mean, there's some big groups out there too that are chasing them, but uh, it is funny. If you talk to even the biggest bowfin haters, they have all the reasons to not like them. All people across all categories have to agree on, on, on one singular thing. And that's it. It's indisputable how hard these things fight. Whether you like the way they smell, the way they look, whether or not you can eat them, it, whether they're destroying things, which they're not, but uh, everybody long, agrees. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Well, that's always the funny thing, but um, 
Anyway, um, but but since then, it seems like, you know, I've seen I, I like your home water stories because I want to start there. I wanna, always want to start like where you began. But but yeah, yeah. in looking through your page, it seems like you've really kind of started like getting into this videography thing. And I just yeah. talked to a guy recently who it's, 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 it's his thing, too. He's really big into making videos, capturing the moments. And it's it's one of those things that's never been my skill set. I've always been a blogger. I like writing. Yeah, but I yeah. really I really envy the guys that have a knack for creating a cool like visual uh experience that that doesn't look fabricated, that doesn't look I don't know exaggerated. Yeah. Yours, yeah. I feel like I don't know how long you've been at it, but I feel like your your videos and they're they're not overwhelmingly long either. You make sort of like good healthy length videos that uh that are really awesome stuff like when did the the videography start to kind of become a thing for you so this is actually funny that uh this was during covid uh i'll kind of tell you my occupation real quick too because it kind of ties into it but i'm a nurse by trade and during covid you know i was either at the hospital working um in the icu or i was back at the house and I didn't really have much free time. Uh, I didn't want to get too far away in case I got called in for some sort of emergent thing that I need to be there for, which happened more often than I can remember. Um, and I remember I was, you know, at that point I was getting into fly fishing really hard and I was picking up a lot and I came across a page and you, if you can get these guys on here, it'd be great. Cause they can tell you more about this than I can, but the, the, name of the channel was tight loops hmm. and they're still around they've really blown up a lot over the last few years and i found one of their videos and it was over i think it was yellowstone yes it was yellowstone it was actually a five-part series but they just blended it into one the whole thing was like an hour and 30 minute hour and 36 minutes long probably haven't memorized at this point but i remember watching it and the guy amy and his wife chase they went to Montana and they brought with them uh, a Sony. Uh, I don't know what model the, uh, the first one was. The other one was a model like I have. It was a Sony 7.3. Yeah. And it's kind of like the go-to for running gun shooting and stuff. It's a mirrorless camera. And um, it was incredible, the shots they were getting and the, the story that they were telling along with it. And they were doing it from this, these cameras. And I mean, it was just incredible. Like they had trout rising. You could see the colors on them. And it wasn't just, it wasn't like a Tom or a Bill dance video where he's just, yeah, we're, you know, we're banging out some fish, yeah, banging yeah. out some bass. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was almost, you have a personal connection to what they're doing. Like we're taking a road trip in a van. And I think like their whole thing was van life at the time. And, you know, they're just out enjoying Yellowstone for what it was and documenting their trip as they went through it and their experiences. And you can almost see how their perspective on Yellowstone changes from when they first start filming to the end. Um, and they actually have no narration through this entire thing. It's completely huh. visual, um, but you can still get the story. Anyways, <laughs> in that long rant, uh, I watched these guys do this and I was like, man, I really want to do that that seems really cool. Yeah. But we have stuff here that I can do the same thing for. Um, I have watched some other YouTube channels that I really didn't, wasn't my thing. Uh, 
you know, you got to talk about Wildfly at some point on here. You know, they they did a video called Five Miles Out that really uh, was really a very well-documented Eastern fly fishing for trout kind of thing. And I wanted to make it a mix of the two. I wanted the same, you know, narration, but also I wanted those really pretty shots. Yeah. And I wanted to mix the two together. And so that's kind of what I ended up coming up, coming up with. And, you know, I don't want to make this a side business or a side hustle, if you want to call it. This is just right, something right. I enjoy doing. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's nothing more um, rewarding for me as an angler seeing some guy message me on Instagram or in my YouTube channel, you know, message my email account and say, dude, like I found, I found your channel and you're five fishing for both in and bass. I didn't even know you could do that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any tips? <laughs> um, or even the bass guys reach out to me and they say, Hey, like you're fly fishing in Georgia. Like where do you, where do you do this at? And of course I don't tell them because you know, I'm, yeah. I'm a gatekeeper. <laughs> But, uh, you know, like, Hey, these are some resources you can look at, you know, trout waters in Georgia are very limited. So, mm -hmm. uh, that's the reason I'm, I'm kind of a gatekeeper on it, but, uh, yeah. And so that's, that's kind of the story of how I got into it. And it's an expensive hobby. I'll give it that Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, especially once you drop your camera in the water once or twice, that adds up pretty fast. So you learn your lessons. Yeah. Well, you know, it, one little thing you mentioned that kind of caught my attention. I don't know what's going on here, but you're like, I think the fifth guy that I've talked to on this podcast who their, their actual job is in the medical field in some way, shape or form nurse, sure. uh, first responders, uh, EMTs. I've had several of them. I'm like, oh, is there something to this? Uh, so that's funny. Actually, uh, David Hurley, same thing. I don't know if, if y'all even got yeah. across. I don't know if y'all mentioned that. Um, Another guy that that I that I talked to is this guy Andrew Bunker. Now he's not on Instagram, but this dude he 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 does medical work up in these like remote Inuit villages, like way yeah, up yeah. north, way up there. And the photography and the landscape that this guy is operating in it will blow your mind. Like he is he is like in Arctic world. Literal yeah, photos yes. of, of polar bears walking around where he's fishing. And, um, but his stuff's crazy. And it's the same thing. He's going way up to these like, remote villages and doing medical work. I'm like, that is so interesting. That's but, hardcore. That's awesome. You know, yeah. And then looking through your stuff, <clears throat> you're obviously a kind of an artistic minded guy. I've seen some of your actual artwork. I don't know if you're doing like watercolor. I yeah, think, yeah, watercolor. Yeah. yeah I think, I'll I think. It seems like fly anglers by nature are just more artistic. Are you tying your own flies as well, or? Yeah, uh, Dabble, you know, dabbling in it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not very good at tying the smaller flies, nymphs and dry flies and stuff. I can't do very well. Uh, streamers, I'm pretty damn good at at this point, I would say. Yeah. Uh, but they cater more towards the eastern, you know, southwestern fish than you know trout or anything. Not, you know, I've caught plenty of trout on the flies I've tied, but again, it's not the, it's not the dry fly that everybody wants to use. It's, mm -hmm. it's like a streamer or, uh, something of that sort. That's a subsurface fly. Yeah. Well, your videos definitely are an expression of the artistic view as well, because I am right there with you where when I, if I watch a like fishing program, um, I mean, to each their own, everybody's got their thing. They like, you know, you get the gimmicky yeah. stuff on YouTube a lot, obviously. And, um, and for the longest time I would like, you know, I was a hater on those guys. I'm like, this is stupid. This is corny. Yeah. And then it's like, 
then I start catching myself being like, well, what's the point of being like negative, you know, in this it's, it's, there's silver linings in all this stuff. Even the guys that are using gummy worms and Spider-Man reels are because who's the view. I mean, who's watching that it's it's they're getting kids are watching. And so I'm like, well, they might be drawing some kids away from, I'm going to say Xbox and sound like an old guy. I don't know if that's even a thing anymore. Whatever game. Yeah. Yeah. And, And so, you know, they might be easier to coax a kid in this day and age outdoors than a more mature approach. So that's a good thing. And I feel like the kids will get out there and then they will begin to mature and they'll, you know, there'll be a level of growth that where, you know, acting silly and being a YouTuber becomes secondary to catching the fish. I'm like, well, you know what? That's, that's okay. But, um, but I, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm going to talk about this for a second because YouTube has become such a two bladed or a, a double bladed sword at this point because it's a it's a wonderful thing as a resource you can mm-hmm. learn a whole lot of stuff from youtube but it's also kind of a crutch for the fishing community because you know you do have guys that post very clickbaity stuff and you know i, I guess it's fun to watch for a little bit but yeah there's no real content to what it is they're doing and i'm not going to reference anybody in particular right yeah i will say like wildfly when they started doing their stuff he was and the guy's name is scott he was very persistent on uh is it scotty i think it is scotty yeah uh anyways very persistent on making sure that if he made a video there was context with it there was something that you could gain or something you could learn or a story that you could listen to and I watched a bunch of, you know, YouTube videos and it was like, guy catches massive brown trout out of small creek or, um, you know. <laughs> they all have the same type of title. I you it, know, I know and it's, it's in all caps. And yeah. it's like. And then there's a parentheses hot topic word like almost died. Cops yeah, call. But it has to be, it has to be extreme. <laughs> right. And I just. I didn't want that because that's not what fishing is, man. Like it's never been that, and it it's never going to be that. If yeah, I, I can't on a fishing trip. Then you couldn't. You couldn't pay me. Anymore. You couldn't pay me any amount. I can't. I cannot do it. I would. I couldn't. I don't know. It probably come off horribly. But um, again, you know, you look at that. I feel like the majority of people that are actually clicking on those things don't fish. Yeah, they're looking to be entertained, and so, like I said, for every. 10,000 clicks they get one of them might be somebody who had otherwise never been interested in fishing and turn into an egg. I don't know. I'm trying to make lemonade here. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 But, um, no, you're right. but with that aside, your video is much more my speed. And the fact that you're capturing all elements of the experience. I like that. I like that. Cause I like, don't want to feel like I'm being sold a product. I don't want fishing to seem so easy. I like yeah. when somebody captures the parts that don't go well, the line breaks, the, you know, you trip and fall and look like an idiot. Um, so when, you know, because it humanizes you and it's like, okay, relatable. Like yeah. I can go, I can go do that. Like this guy's normal. That's it. Yep. It's relatable. That's exactly right. It's, yep. it's something that somebody has to relate to. And, uh, you know, as YouTube channels grow, sometimes they start to branch out to these really extreme environments where the normal person can't get to south america mm-hmm. great example 
Um, and people, if you look at it, people will slowly stop to watch those channels because again, it's just so unrelatable for that person. They yep. don't, they don't care about fishing in South America. They won't see what you do here in the U S yep. I think we're going to see a huge bounce back to what do we have to offer around us? What is here right. locally? Bofin, great example. Yeah, that's a funny one. The the Bofin in very recent times. Sorry, my my collar's popping. I'm looking like a Are YouTuber you here. <laughs> I'm looking like a YouTuber with my pop collar. Um, I've gotten messages in very recent times a lot out of this contingency of anglers out of like South Asia, where snakehead culture is so big and lure fishing is so big, and a lot of the physical characteristics of the fish they like to catch match Bofin. So I had started posting Bofin on this Facebook group that's devoted like international angling, international monster fish. Yeah, and yeah. people went crazy. I have gotten really? so many messages. And I post my alligator gar. I post like, you know, Goliath grouper from shore. Like I'm trying to like, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, beat my chest a little bit here. But <laughs> the boat, the Bofin images that I posted to my surprise, have gar- garnered a lot more interest that I would have ever thought with, with some of these guys, especially the snakehead fanatics, because it's like this crazy snakehead doppelganger. Mind yes. you, the two fish are completely, completely different. In to the, the untrained eye, yeah, they look similar. But yeah. if, you, if you are a hardcore fishing dude or you, you know, moderately fishing dude, yep. you'll know that the difference pretty, yeah. pretty fast. It's it's so world different. I mean, they, they exist in similar environments, but man, that, that's it. I mean, they, they both got a long fin dorsal fin in yeah. there's vague similarities in the way they look but other than that behavioral behaviorally way different way different um but i want to know how a guy from south georgia ends up way out in like i don't know the oh, western yeah. mountains i mean how, how did that happen you just get this the the curiosity bug got the best of you you load up your gear and started driving i mean what how'd you find yourself out there tell me about yeah. some of those trips um, you know, I got one in particular, I'll tell you, it was actually a hike, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so the first time that I went out West, um, I just graduated college. I hope I don't sound too entitled with this story, but I graduated college and my mom asked me, she was like, well, do you want to do anything before you start work? And I said, you know, Alaska, I think would be pretty cool. I'd like to go to Alaska if I could, I could afford the trip at the time. Mm-hmm. She said, okay. Um, well, how about this? Do you want to go to Montana? And I said, well, what's in Montana? And she said, well, the, the gentleman I worked for, who was a lawyer, uh, has a cabin out there. Would you want to go to the cabin? It's on you know about 200 acres. He doesn't go out there ever, hardly. Um, but he really loves it. He talks about it all the time. It's this beautiful place. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty reluctant at first because I'd never been out there. I'd never seen pictures of it. You know, I'd never been further west than the Mississippi. Um, and so we ended up going out there. And the first time we went was me and my dad. The most incredible time. We had never, I mean, it, it was, nothing will top that trip. Going back and top that trip. It was just me and him. And yeah. just a week of just hardcore fishing just getting out on the water seeing some incredible views the mountains and after that first trip which was in 2019 we've been back every year since and this last year 
I had applied to graduate school because I wanted I want, wanted to advance my career and be um, basically an anesthetist, the person that puts you to sleep when you're in the OR. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up getting into school, but I had also planned to take a contract while I was out there. So I was going to work. Me and my girlfriend are both nurses. We're going to work in Montana. And I ended up, you know, pulling back out of that contract and saying, look, I'm in school. I can't, I can't fulfill it, but I'm still going to go with Katie out there. So we ended up spending about six to seven months in Montana, uh, hiked, backpacked. I mean, you name it, man. I was out there. I didn't get as much video as I wanted to while I was out there. I was kind of disappointed about that because there's a lot that I just could not or did not capture with the camera. Uh, the one thing I did was I did a cast and blast. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but you basically go fly fishing that morning uh, or that afternoon, and then you shoot some sort of upland bird or waterfowl that afternoon. Or oh, that's cool. At the same time, yeah. So uh, that morning I went and it was the opening day of grouse season. Never shot a grouse before, never done it before, didn't have a dog, just had a gut feeling and a shotgun. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm hiking up this mountain out there and I jump, I jumped three grouse. I got all three. I got my limit, like, just like that. And I was like, dude, just shot my limit of grouse. How awesome. And the best thing was I got it on the GoPro, um, uh, videoed that a little bit. And then afterwards I went and caught some little brown trout of a little Creek. And, uh, that's probably the best day that I had while I was out there. I mean, it was awesome. Just I cooked the birds at night, stuck them in the oven, you know, wrapped them in the bacon, did the whole seasoning thing. It was a great dinner. Oh, uh, yeah. That sounds I awesome. Mean, it, yeah. I mean, it tasted fantastic. Never had a bird that tasted like this. And the grouse are really big. They're almost like chickens. This is huh. the best way to describe them. Uh, so that was that was a cool trip I did. But the one that I really wanted to get on video that I couldn't, I had had an itch. Do you know what a golden trout is? I think so. Well, you're talking about like a color variation where it's like the like genetic, they turn gold. Yeah. So there's there's two two different types of golden trout people think of. There's a palomino, which is the one that looks like a banana. It's yellow. Okay. Um, I've seen worth, them in the Ozarks. Well, yeah, I'll, they'll be it in kind of a controlled, not wild waters, but yeah, I've I've seen them. Yeah. So people in South rainbow Georgia trout. Yeah, there you go. It's a rainbow trout. They don't know the difference. So anything that's yellow, it's a yellow trout. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a golden trout. Not the same. Golden trout is from the Sierra Nevada range natively, but they were transplanted into some lakes in Montana. I'm not going to name the ones. Uh, but I had a hunch and a knackering to go catch one. And after probably three months of trying to figure out where they are, talking to everybody I could who fly fished out there, Someone finally said, hey, have you, have you thought of this place? And he said, it's eight miles. He said, it's the hardest hike you will ever do in your entire life. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and he wasn't wrong. Uh, and he said, you have to go in the summertime. Otherwise, you will freeze to death on the mountain. So I was like, you know, what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a great video out of it. It'd be a great backpacking, trout packing is what they call it. Uh, type video and so I did uh, I went out and I hiked I'll tell you the first part of the hike was four miles of just nearly flat ground like easy hike and I was like man I'll get up there in no time this is an easy hike yeah of course I, I was in the best shape of my life at the time and 
I get to the base of the mountain and you have to cross a creek. And then after that, I didn't realize until I got up there to it, but it was the elevation gain was uh, about 5,000 feet over about three miles. So you're looking at almost a mile vertical of upward gain that you're going to have to do as you go to this lake. Mm-hmm. And it was over uh, scale rock. So it's basically just loose rock that just falls out from under your feet. And I had a 60 pound pack. You know, I got camera gear, food for three days, water um, or water filtration stuff, tent, everything that I would need up there in case shit hit the fan. (laughs) And I get up there, man, and I had set up camp and I almost didn't, I wasn't going to say almost didn't make it, but it was very hard. Like I got to the top and I finally get sat down. I was completely exhausted, but I thought it was because of the hike. And I didn't find out till the next morning, not only was I sick, but I had altitude sickness. Oh, geez. And yeah, so I, I had my Garmin watch on that night and uh, I was getting ready to go to bed and I'd almost passed out earlier. because so I was like, I just, so I just thought I was tired, man, but no, I had passed out because I couldn't freaking breathe. And I went to go to bed that night. My heart rate was like 120 beats a minute, which is way, way out of normal range. It's also 7.30 at night, so I can't move back down the mountain. So I'm stuck at the top of the mountain trying to suck air so I can basically not call an SOS on there yeah. on top of someone to come save me. So I ended up just calling the trip. But on the way out, I'll never forget, I had looked back at the lake. And uh, I was watching the golden trout in this lake. They were jumping out and eating. Uh, they were eating the flies out of the air and they just oh my gosh coming out and i was like i have to make it down this mountain today because if i don't and i got stuck up here i'm screwed and it took me eight hours to get up here yesterday yeah and uh and i saw one that was probably 18 20 24 inches he was huge just cruising on the shoreline and it, it took everything in me to not just unpack my crap and get my fly rod out uh but yeah, man, that was that was gonna be the video of the trip right there, and it it, it kind of fell through. So. You, do you have any plans on trying to get some kind of redemption or or, or get oh, back yeah, over for there? Sure. Yeah. How do you physically yeah, that, prepare for something like that? I mean, what was your? I don't know. It's uh, almost like that's almost like you're gonna have to have it like a preseason training regiment to get physically yeah. ready for that. Um. So I'm uh I'm a pretty exercise prone person. Um. Before I went on the trip, I was already running three or four miles a day yeah. and, you know, other exercises and stuff. And then preparing for the trip, I actually, I would take dumbbells from the Planet Fitness or their plates, <laughs> whatever they had available at the time. And I'd put them in my pack and I would uh, just get on the stair, stair climber and do that for literally uh, 30 minutes to an hour. And before I left, I was doing it for up to an hour and a half with about... 45 pounds of plates in the back, just humping up the, humping up the stair climber. And then I'll do some other stuff with it, but mainly the stair climber got me ready for it, but you can't compare that to the lack of oxygen. You can get your body ready physically for it. But I mean, unless you're training in that kind of environment, you'll never be ready for it. And that's what got me. I was in Billings at the time. So I was in very flat terrain doing my training and stuff. I should have been up in the mountains doing my training and I didn't. Yeah. And that's what kind of bit me in the butt. That's why I freaked out when I got up there. I didn't freak out, but my heart did. 
and that made me a little nervous. So now is yeah, this bear? Gotta, is this like bear country too? I mean, are you out oh, there? Yeah. Where, yeah. And you're completely alone. Yep. Did you have a firearm? Were you armed? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was actually pretty underarmed. I would say, you know, uh, the gun I was carrying—it's a Glock 40. I think it's the Gen 23, maybe. Okay. Um, but it was—I had bear loads in it, so it's—it's um, it's basically hard casted lead, very heavy rounds. They're not like your standard ones. They don't have a flat hollow mm-hmm. tip on them. They're just made to punch in and out. And I carried that with me. Uh, I had a hip holster. Really wish I had a chest holster for it, but I didn't want to spend the money on one. Retrospectively, I should have. Um, but I had that. I had bear spray in my cargo pants on my pocket in case I could grab it real quick. Um, but my gun was always yeah number one option in case something happened. Uh, well, it sounds like you've got unfinished business at that place because like what you described sounds really awesome but it also sounds like the kind of thing yeah. that would like eat away at my conscience and like keep me up at night to be that right there looking yeah. at the water seeing the fish but then i don't know for the sake of your health and well-being turn it yeah. back so. i was very disappointed yeah man i mean I, when i got back the guy the the shop i was had talked to i, I told him i went and he said the first thing he said was well, son, you have got the biggest balls of anybody I know because I don't know anyone who would do that hike by themselves. And then he followed the question up with, or that statement with, uh, did you catch any fish? And I said, no, I didn't, but I saw a lot. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of looked at me and I kind of told him what had happened. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, you got flatfoot syndrome. And I said, what's that? And he said, people from the South, they have flatfoot syndrome. They don't have mountains down there. So <laughs> uh, it was kind of funny. but. Yeah, definitely some redemption going on there. I will be back at some point. I'm not sure when because I'll be tied up here for the next two and a half years at least. Yeah. With school. Um, but yeah, man, that that place is just incredible. I'm I'm gonna be back at some point for sure. Yeah. Well, the fish photos that you have from out there and around that area, and especially the landscape photos are really cool. I, I like that. I I like anybody that pauses and at least takes yeah. time to kind of capture what's around instead of just strictly having fishing pictures. I like to see like where people are at. I mean, for me and everybody's got their own thing, but like fishing is just like, it's like your excuse sort of to go out and be, I don't know, immersed in like really interesting places. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's a very urban setting, even if you're city fishing, there's an interest to that. Like, like what we have here in Florida where you can go and chase this multitude and this, this variety of exotic fish from different parts of the world. And, behind a mcdonald's yeah it's unique it's not a beautiful thing but it's like it's a curious thing that's like wow this is weird like this fish that that is from some of the most remote jungles of south america's right there under that shopping cart with that crack pipe floating by you know it's it's interesting (laughs) Um, yeah Uh, so but you go from the mountains yeah yeah it's i don't know it's different i I don't, you know what? There's no poetic way for me to twist that and turn that into a, a, a pretty thing. It's you're just looking straight at you. All you're focused on down here in those areas is the fish. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got to, you were up in the mountains and a grizzly bear might jump out at you. And you come down to South Florida, it might be more dangerous where a, a crackhead could jump out from under a bridge at you. Yeah. Booga, booga, booga. 
Like, <laughs> I don't know. I'd rather, I'd much rather face a bear than somebody out of their mind on drugs. A, I can a tell you Florida that. man. Yeah. Florida yeah. man, something else. I'd say a, a Florida man would probably beat a grizz. We don't have as big of a problem in Southwest Florida. It's nice and classy where I'm at, but it's slowly coming this way. But there. on that yeah. on that note, I mean, you go from the you know from where you're at in your home waters in Georgia. You've been out west fishing in the mountains and and in Mo- Montana and and doing that thing. And then I know recently, now you're starting to kind of do a little bit the saltwater trips. And you just mm-hmm. spent some time in, in Florida fishing around the Everglades. I hate that we couldn't meet up, but you know, tell me a little bit about that trip. I saw your videos. I saw some of the stuff yeah. you were doing there, but that that looked interesting. Um, uh, so Florida man is like, it's, um, uh, best way. I mean, it's like opportunity abound because yeah. a lot of travel guys, they make the move to Florida. I guess, you know, your snowbirds in the wintertime because you have so many fish that you can go after in the winter. Um, and you know, the, the trash fish are slowly beginning to be more of something that's pursued. Jack Creval. I think is like the most underrated fish in the Gulf coast. Like nothing compares to, well, maybe a tarpon, but I mean, it's a small, it's a poor man GT is what it is. If you've ever heard of great Trevally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's just a poor man version of it. And uh, Florida, man, it's just like, you can go down there, you can catch snook, bass, bofin, uh, peacock bass, jacks out of the same exact creek or canal that you're in and it's just i mean the opportunity is nuts and you just don't have that i guess further inward you know uh now granted your bite depends on the tide and stuff a little bit more so there's a lot more factors that go into but when it's hot man it's like insane um and i guess the same thing for anywhere else you go but yeah florida is just there's so much opportunity there that i haven't even been able to experience yet um yeah man it's yeah (laughs) there's something else well it looks like you got into a few fish i enjoyed watching your video especially how excited you got about the jacks because it's kind of the same thing it's weird so it's saltwater doesn't have it as much but even in saltwater there's some fish that are considered like trash fish but on the topic of jacks yeah i had i had a guy actually on this on this podcast if you want to look at a jack and appreciate it. You know, there's the jacks that are, you know, that they're, they're going to give you a fight. You know, your your ten to fifteen pound jack, your your typical jack that they're 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 hard chargers. They're smashing and attacking ruthlessly, like like blitz and bait fish and stuff like that. Yeah, there's yeah. a guy here. I had him on here. Very interesting guy named David. He goes by David Rocca. It's R O C C A. And this dude catches a whole other caliber of jacks. I'm talking about 40 pounders, 50 pounders. These just donkey monster jacks. And probably more so than anybody else I've seen, he's dialed these things into where he's basically become Florida's like specialist for catching these. But you mentioned GTs. He, uh, and he comes from very humble beginnings. Really cool story. This guy, uh, you know, came to the U S from Cuba basically had to restart his whole life. You know, you come here, those guys come here under less than ideal conditions and, and have to restart. I mean, everything resets. And he went from being, you know, basically sustenance fishing with hand lines in Cuba to, you know, he really described like his evolution as an angler going from hand lines all the way up to having this like high level gear 
and fallen in love with Jack Craval of all fish. And he learned how to catch them by watching videos of those guys in Australia fishing off the rocks for GTs yeah, yeah, yeah. with giant with giant plugs. That was and awesome. this, this dude throws poppers that are like the size of your forearm surf casting <laughs> from the beaches. And he catches these giant jacks. And he uses like 400 pound mono leader. Like he's throwing wild gear and probably more than anybody else. He's, he's dialed these things in, but it's like, that's crazy. It's rare in Florida for you to be like the guy of anything. Cause everybody's an angler oh, yeah. and you ain't doing nothing. Nobody else has done before, but like, he is like the guy with those fish. I have to send you his page later. If you want to, if you want to admire, like, I don't know, man, our West coast jacks, they're not like what, like he, he's dealing with something different over there. Yeah. But it's cool. Yeah, but man, anyway, man. Big jacks are just a uh, huge fly fisherman actually caught a huge one. It was probably 35 or 40 pounds mm. on a fly rod. Man, it, I mean, it's just like a constant fight. Even at the edge of the boat, they don't give up. They just don't yep. roll over. They stay sideways and they just go around in circles, yep. man, until they finally break the, the surface of the water. So it's, yeah, it's, it's yep. a tough time to land one. I've only caught the I've only caught the like little ones or I guess average size ones, but that is actually yeah. like on like high on my agenda. Just like local waters, like priority type fishing around here, like those big giant jacks. That's that's probably one of the number one things I want to do here in Florida, like this year, like it, yeah, yeah. like in the next thirty days or the next two months. Uh, I want to get over there and try that just just chunking plugs for these giant jacks. That's like a that's something I really want to try, but. Um, be a unique experience for sure yeah but anyway man um i know we're winding down on time you mentioned at the very start of this conversation so this isn't really fishing related um the traditional you said you were doing what what were you doing yesterday traditional oh, bow uh, hunting? i was archery hunting yeah this morning what were you what were you hunting i mean tell uh, me a little bit about that georgia's seasons right now i hope i don't get this wrong <laughs> But uh, Georgia seasons right now, we have small game season in, um, and you can hunt uh, hogs during the small game season because mm. it's, it's you know feral hog. Um, and so the season for them is open from the first day of small game season or deer season or any other season for that matter, all the way until the end of small game season. And um, I, I, I grew up hunting with my dad a whole lot. I was about 15 or 16. He bought me a uh, bear recurve bow. So it's actually on my wall right here. I guess I can get it down in a second. Yeah. But it's um, recurve and traditional archery hunting really is to me, I guess, the same way that fly fishing is. It's, it's pure. I would say it's pure instinct because it's not just instinct, but it's you're more connected, I guess is the best way to describe it, or you feel more connected, maybe. It's not like a compound bow where you just line up the sights and let it go. You don't have mm -hmm. a trigger release. There's no fancy equipment for it. It's just you and the bow and how well you can shoot. Um, a little bit of guessing as far as your distances and stuff. Yeah. It just comes with time and skill. And um, yeah, I mean, it's something that I hadn't done in probably four or five years. And I'm now finally at a point where I can sit down and get back into it. I wish I did it more when I was in Montana because I had the chances to, I just never did. And uh, yeah, man, it's definitely something I think I'm going to slowly incorporate it to my channel. Maybe I've been considering it because it's more of a, you know, fishing channel than, than hunting, but um, 
it's just it it's dang near an art that's almost died at this point you know yeah. fred bear was the guy who started the company who builds bare bows but in probably the 80s and 70s he did a great job of kind of showing once again telling the story man like this is how i hunted elk in you know wyoming this is how i hunted bighorn sheep uh, this is how i hunted whitetail when i was a kid you know that kind of stuff and so like again the bow just kind of gets back to a simpler time i guess is the best way to describe it not a whole lot going on in it yeah that's cool what you said you got that thing on the wall i just i want to look at it real quick yeah yeah we, man let me get it down for you real quick before we hop off of here just for my own personal satisfaction so i don't know if i can fit it in the screen here but this is no oh, yeah this is it um that's cool got, yeah yeah it's uh like i said i hadn't used it a whole lot uh it's basically been in my closet at the house for several years at this point, never used it. And now I'm like, you know what? I want to get back into it because I really did enjoy it when I, when I had time for it. And, uh, I mean, you can take anything you want with a recurve bow, mm. you know, it's just the same as a compound bow, just the basics. Uh, well, ho hog so, hunting in Georgia was something like that. That sounds pretty intense. Oh yeah. I mean, if you put that on your YouTube channel, I'd be happy to watch that. And I don't, I don't, I don't hunt it at all, yeah, but yeah, I would yeah. totally tune into that. But, um, sure, you know, we've mentioned your YouTube channel a lot. It's something that I, I like a lot. Like, I feel like it's a growing thing. Yeah. And, uh, man, if it's growing and it's kind of, if, if this is considered maybe the early stages of it, your starting point is really advanced. And uh, and I know now we've got a mutual friend in Josh Dolan. And I remember after I ran across your stuff, I was sending him links to your things. I was like, man, <laughs> I was like, this yeah. dude's videos, like, where do you think they'll be like five years from now? 10 years from now, this guy's going to have some incredible stuff. Cause like what you already have is really, really cool. And it's like, it's, it's really that, like, yeah, it's, it's my speed and I'm building it up right now, but uh, people are probably wondering, okay, well, well, where do I find it? So, you know, what is like your YouTube handle, Instagram, like where can people find some of the stuff you're doing? Not very tech savvy. I'll be honest with you, but if you just look up um, half moon fly fishing on, I guess, Google or YouTube for that matter, It'll pull up my channel. It should be the first one that comes up, or at least the second one. And, you know, you can find all my videos on there. I do everything from uh, fly fishing for trout out in Montana with my pops and stuff, um, all the way to, I guess, my best work that I've done so far has been here in Georgia, actually. Uh, you know, Okefenokee Swamp, backpacking in North Georgia, South Carolina, that area, doing, I guess, trout packing trips, if you want to mm -hmm. call them that. Uh, the Bowfin one was a really big one um and i guess my favorite one that i've done so far was actually i teamed up with huge fly fisherman he kind of helped me out with my channel and got me some more subscribers and more viewers and stuff but i've actually had like ten thousand views on that one it was just me making fun of us as fly fishermen and yeah. my pet peeves and stuff um and yeah i mean if like i said if you just look it up half moon fly fishing it'll pull it up uh, as far as my Instagram, I have like 158 followers, so no. we're getting there. <laughs> really, really humble beginnings, like you said, but yeah, it'll it'll take some time to grow. Well, don't get too caught up in the follower count. Too many people do. Yeah, to fair. the point of literally putting money into it, um, and that's you know I don't know, man. That's a that's a poison. That's a route. That's a road. People don't you need start, to be going down. You start to lose the passion after. No. 
if you start doing it for monetary purposes and trying to grow a business out of it, you can do it. You know, it's very possible. A lot of yep. guys have been successful doing that, but you're going to get burnt out doing it. And people, yep. people will notice that in your videos and they'll stop watching them yeah. because of that. And they're not going to yep. appreciate you as an angler because of it. Well, I know you said you do a lot of this stuff just for your own like interest and it's something you do for yourself and it's something you want like kids and your nephews and nieces and whatever to see. But uh, trust me, a lot of other people are out there going to want to see it. So so you're going to at some point have to start entertaining people like me who want to see more. I want to see more. You know what I mean? So I, I hope you don't slow down. I know you got to focus on your schooling and all that stuff, but you you've definitely got a good baseline skill for these things videography wise photography wise your mentality is in the right place you don't seem like a corruptible guy uh, but I, I look forward to seeing uh what you got coming next for sure i really appreciate having you on as well brother thanks for having me it's great talking to you and finally getting this set up and uh getting it going so we'll have to hook up sometime down there in florida i'll put you on some fly fish for sure. Yeah. Next time, next time the stars will align and schedules will align. And when you come down here, I'll make it a point to link up. Yes, sir. So, all right, man, have a good one. All right, brother. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thank you for listening to the boundless pursuit podcast. If you enjoyed this show, your feedback comments and reviews are very important to me. Also, this podcast is just one element to a much bigger content outlet. I urge you to head over to www.haverodswilltravel.com where you'll find audio, visual, and written editorial content. That is three dimensions of awesome fishing content brought to you by a very dynamic team of anglers. I hope that you'll tune in next week as we continue to build this program and have interesting and skilled anglers each Thursday. Thank you for listening.